Awesome. Um, yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, we're going to have a look at this passage today, and um, seems to have everything in it. <laughs> to get all the big topics all in one, marriage, divorce, singleness, celibacy, eunuch, sex, it's all in one today, so it's my job. <laughs> and it's not my fault, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, so I would not be choosing to talk about these topics, trust me. <laughs> so, but we are, we are going through Matthew's Gospel, so that's, that's, this is where we're up to, so this is, this is why we're talking about this. Um, and, and yeah, there are some pretty uh, uh, big, big topics um, that obviously affect everyone. Sort of the overarching topic today is, is marriage. And then I guess everyone in some ways has a relationship with marriage, whether it's being in a marriage, being in and then out of a marriage, waiting to be in a marriage, choosing not to be in a marriage. Everyone has a, a relationship with that. And that's really what this is about today. And um, as we'll see, this was a controversial um, topic uh, in Jesus' day, and is a massively controversial topic still today in, in society and in the church. And I suppose I'm, I'm just going to share um, and, and kind of cover broadly uh, this passage and, and these topics today, and um, even in how to interpret these passages, though, there's actually significant debate um, among Christians and, and disagreements. You may disagree even with things that I say today, and that's, that's okay, and, and, and this is not the final word, but this is a... a, a and offering a presentation of, of what I think Jesus is saying in his heart is in this as well. So I'm just going to pray, and then, then we'll start looking at this today. So I just thank you, Jesus, yeah, for your wisdom, for your ways, for your heart. Thank you. You've given us your word, your spirit, and um, yeah, good gifts. And we just pray that you'd speak to us um, from your word, give us understanding, but we ask you to also speak to us in our hearts, particularly where there's been pain and and wounds and struggle, and yeah, we even ask for healing and, and just, yeah, grace and your mercy and kindness over us today, and um, yeah, just lift our gaze and, and renew our minds through your word, we pray in your name. Amen. So, so this is a series that we have been going through. We're getting close to the end of it for this year, through Matthew's Gospel, and we call it The Servant, and um, it's about Jesus who has come as the Messiah, but as, uh, as the king, but he doesn't fit people's categories. He's also a servant and ultimately a suffering servant. And he said that he's going to the cross. And now we even see in Matthew's gospel that he starts heading toward where this is going to happen. It says that when Jesus had finished these sayings, the previous things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So he's starting to move south to Jerusalem, which is where everything is. It's the capital, it's where the festivals are going to be, and ultimately it's where the, the conflict is going to happen and his death occur. And the tension just keeps building. It's been building through the whole of Matthew's Gospel, and it keeps building here, even on the journey. Because what we see is that Jesus' opponents, the Pharisees, who've decided that he is not from God and, and want to discredit him, come to test him. So they're actually coming up, kind of meeting him on the way, and he's got this big crowd, this, follow, this following, and that's why they hate him, because he has so much influence, and the people are, are, are following him, and from their perspective, Jesus is leading them astray. He's a, he's a threat to national security. He's a threat to Israel's identity, so he must be dealt with, so they're trying to discredit him. So it says some Pharisees came to him to test him. So that's their, their motive. They, they want to trap him. They want to discredit him. And they do it with a question. They asked, is it lawful... For a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. So they're asking this question not 
as a legitimate question that they, they need some help uh, to, to work out what to do to honor God. They're asking this question as a trap. And the reason is because it was an incredibly controversial question at the time. Um, there's, there's some controversy maybe today around this, but particularly it was like the, one of the big controversial debates of the day. So if you can kind of imagine like sometimes when there's, a, there's the key debate and if someone asks your opinion on it publicly, like that's a bit of a vulnerable position to be in because what you say could like split people's opinion of you. And the Pharisees are probably hoping that that will happen effectively. They're probably hoping that um, the crowds won't like Jesus' response um, and may not follow him. Or it, it may also be that um, it's interesting because Herod uh, has this, had this strange divorce and that John has just been killed because he called Herod out on it. And it could even be that the Pharisees are kind of hoping the same thing might happen to Jesus. He might say something about Herod, and then Herod would deal with, they're just trying to get rid of Jesus effectively. But what I need to do is just give you some background as to, to why this was such a controversial question. So I'm just going to look at some passages in the Old Testament around this question of divorce, um, and just some background with it. So we'll just look at two passages. One is not the controversial passage, but it's just some context. There's this passage in Exodus 21, which says it's talking about a man who, who marries um, a woman who, who's been given to him, who was a slave and who's been given to him, but then goes and marries another wife because it was a polygamous culture. So people would have multiple wives. So if, if he marries someone, but then it says, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Um, marital rights really is referring to sex and particularly to the opportunity to bear children. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So this is an example of divorce in the Old Testament. Now, it's not an ideal situation, right? It's not ideal that people would have multiple wives, but you can see that the heart behind this law is that this woman who's in a marriage, who's totally dependent on this man, if he marries another woman and totally neglects her, she's got no way of surviving because she's totally dependent on, the woman at the time would need a marriage partner to survive. So this law is to protect her that says if he will not provide for her needs, she's actually free to go, and the implication is to go and find another husband who will provide. So this is some context that there were these conditions where divorce could happen, and it was this protection, particularly in this case a protection for women. This wasn't the um, passage that was in, in, in the context of the, of the controversy. The, the, the next passage is in Deuteronomy, which is really the key one. These are sort of two key ones in the law, but the Deuteronomy passage. I'm just going to read it all out. It's pretty wordy. It's Jewish law. Um, so let's just, let's just read it. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. She has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. That's the passage in question. Obviously, it's got a lot in it. Um, it does seem to kind of be a protection almost for second marriages, like, like if, if the... If the, first, if the man does divorce the first wife, it's almost saying, like, that's final. Like, you're not to go back and forth and back. Like, that seems to be kind of what it's saying, but that's not the point. The point is how to interpret these two words, which were displeasing and indecent. 
And this was a huge controversy in first century Israel. We know this because of archaeological evidence, because of documents that have been found, that of writings of different rabbis, that there was massive debate. Because um, this, in this context, right, this is about a man divorcing a, a wife. It's a very patriarchal culture. Um, but uh, it really is trying to understand, well, what are the conditions that, that he, a man could do that? Um, so there are two main schools. Um, the first school was led by Rabbi Shammai, and he interpreted the word indecency to mean sexual immorality. So if the wife was guilty of adultery, then the man could write her a certificate of divorce. And, and again, the, the whole certificate of divorce thing was there as a protection um, for the woman, because if, if a man just discarded her, and then she would find it difficult to get remarried. But just simply having the documentation shows she has had a legitimate divorce, therefore she can be remarried. Now, this is, I guess there's a whole lot more we could say about, about that. Um, but the, the idea is that the, the, the laws that are given here are, are still are protections to make the best of, of bad situations. But the situation in the case of how do you interpret these words, the conservative position of Rabbi Shammai was a man could only do that if it was sexual morality. That, that's all. But there was another school, led by Rabbi Hillel, that taught that the words displeasing and indecent meant basically anything. Because these are vague, they were vague words. So that, that, there wasn't it wasn't clear what they meant, so people could debate it. And he took a very liberal, liberal view, which said if the wife is displeasing, which means that the husband doesn't like her anymore, or she didn't cook a very nice dinner, and there's... And there's literally documented evidence of rabbis saying that, like saying, if, if you don't like how your wife cooked the dinner, you can divorce her because of ex Deuteronomy 24. You would be being biblical is effectively what the position was. Like, that is okay. And, or it could even be that you find someone else more pleasing. And if a man liked, had a wife but then saw someone else he would prefer, he could divorce her. He just, all he has to do is write a certificate. That was really the... And, and some rabbis even seem to say that if... Um, she was displeasing or um, yeah, there was some problem that he even should divorce her. Uh, so th th this was kind of a very liberal position and this was the, really the popular position. This was kind of the common practice position, which really, when they come to ask, the, the Pharisees are saying, um, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is what they're referring to because that, that, that effectively is any and every reason. All you have to do is give a certificate. So Jesus, they're asking Jesus to weigh in on this debate, that's why it's co so controversial, and this background really is important to sort of make sense of what Jesus is saying as well. But Jesus responds not on their terms, uh, he responds on his terms, and they're trying to, to pick a fight with him about Deuteronomy, and he says, no, we're going to go right back to Genesis. He says this in verse 4 to 6, haven't you read, which is a good stab, right? Didn't you read your Bibles? <laughs> like, didn't you read the first page, effectively, is what he's saying. Like, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the Pharisees are wanting Jesus to weigh in on this controversial debate. How do you interpret Deuteronomy 24, Jesus? What does indecency mean? And Jesus says, I'm not going to talk about that. Like, we're going to talk about Genesis and actually God's heart and intention and purpose for marriage. 
Now, this is not to kind of pit Genesis against Deuteronomy. It's to say Genesis has the intention and the purpose, and what we'll see later is Deuteronomy is a, is a concession. It's still God's word, but it's definitely not the ideal. But Jesus brings it back to the ideal, and even bigger than that, he brings it back to really the purpose of human life, which he says that humans are actually made by a creator and actually made in the image of God, which means that actually the, the purpose of human life is to reflect God and his goodness. So God made humanity for that reason. And in Genesis 1, it says that God made humans in the image of God, male and female. So the way God made humans, all humans are to reflect the image of God, but there's two categories of humans, which is male and female. And then he says, he, he, he creates this thing called marriage, which is to reflect the image of God again, because it's one humanity that is in two that then becomes one. He says the two become one, and then what happens is that actually produces life. That's actually how life is made. And this is God's design because that actually reflects God and what he is like. He's a being of perfect oneness and unity whose covenant love and intimacy overflows with life. And marriage is, is really designed to be this, this picture of it. What we'll see later, it's not the only picture of it, but, but it's really, this is what God's heart is for marriage. Marriage is actually not an arrangement for human happiness. It's a sacred symbol of the image of God. It's a, it's a covenant. It's not just a contract or an agreement between two people, but it's actually a, a binding promise for life, is what Jesus is saying, bringing it back to, to Genesis, that two people actually becoming one, and then Jesus says, these are not to be split apart. Um, and in some ways, it could even be that Jesus is saying, stop tearing it apart. Like, like the Pharisees are tearing it apart. And, and their kind of disrespect for marriage has even shown that they would use the marriage debate and these controversial passages as a way to trap Jesus. It's just taking this sacred thing and in their practice of easy divorce and in the, even in their using of this controversy, just had totally... Uh, rejected the sacredness and its, and its beauty and God's intention and purpose with it. And particularly that, the, the purpose of it is that it is meant to be forever. It's meant to be lifelong. It's meant to be differences, male and female, united in one, separate yet together. And this is really uh, controversial then, right? And, and is still controversial today. This is a, a very different view of marriage uh, than our culture has, that, that then our movies have, then particularly shows like Married at First Sight have, like the idea of that being bound for life, right, is, is, is that's not really people's picture of marriage. Often that it's to be, um, and, and that it reflects the image of God. So often it's simply about human happiness, personal fulfillment, um, the meaning of desire. But then if that's the purpose, then if those things are not being met, it makes perfect sense that it should be ended. But if the purpose is that actually reflects a covenant-making God and the image of God, then actually it's not about whether we are uh, happy or not. It's actually about how are we worshipping and reflecting God and honouring Him. So Christian marriage is actually something very different. It's not an end in itself even. It's not even primarily for our benefit. Ultimately, it reflects God. Ultimately, it's an act of worship and actually being true to our humanity and our design. So we uh, must be careful not to take our cues for marriage from our culture, 
um, from our movies, and even from other marriages we see, or even from our spouse. It's not that we, we respond to their love, it's actually that it's God's love for us that we love them. Like, it's actually we love them because we're fulfilling a covenant we've made before God. It's actually God is to be at the center of it. So Christian marriage is a very high call. It must not be entered into lightly, and those who are in it must guard it and nourish it and cherish it and treat it as sacred. And I think that, that can be a, a real message for us today, just come back to Jesus' really high view of marriage. But the disciples, the, not the disciples, the Pharisees still are trying to trap Jesus, and, and they just want to bring it back to this passage and the controversy. So they, they kind of ignore, really, that he's said all of that. They sort of seem to think that's irrelevant because they're just stuck on this Deuteronomy. They say, well, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he's saying, well, what, why is this the case, Jesus? Like, like Jesus, Moses seems to command divorce. And again, they just totally missed the point. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the Pharisees sort of just focus on this way out, right, and, and this, this controversy, and even then are so lost from the original purpose of the even saying Moses would command divorce, that Jesus says, no, Moses and, and God, who gave the law through Moses, made a concession for divorce because people's hearts are hard, because of sin, that where there's brokenness, um, where there's covenants that have been totally broken, Jesus says there's an allowance that, that, would, that would be acknowledged through divorce. But Jesus does weigh into the debate, right? They've pressed him. They want his opinion. Do you side with Shemaiah? Do you side with Halal? What does it mean, right? What's the indecency? And Jesus does. He says here what it is. He takes the conservative view. He says, Deuteronomy 24 is talking about sexual morality. It's not talking about anything that's displeasing to, to the husband. He's, he's strong on that. And he effectively says, those who are taking it as anything that's displeasing and divorcing their wives to marry someone else, they're guilty of adultery. Like, their divorce is not valid. And this is important, right, that Jesus is weighing in on this debate. This is not Jesus' final word on divorce. He's, he's addressing this debate and this thing that was going on. And what we see is that marriage is not to be discarded easily, but because of human hard-heartedness, there are situations where it may end. Now, this is a massive topic still today in the church that this is not a final word on, um, and I can't represent all the views here either. There's probably going to be different views present uh, with us, and, and it's definitely a topic that I encourage you to, to study, to look into. I can't go too deep in it today. But, but Jesus does give grounds for divorce. Um, here he mentions sexual morality and says... Deuteronomy 24 is about sexual morality. We know that Paul, the apostle in, in 1 Corinthians 7, talks about a, a, someone who becomes a Christian, but their partner doesn't, and their partner leaves and abandons them. And Paul says that the Christian partner is not bound, which in, in that context, understanding means that they are allowed to divorce. And if it's a legitimate divorce, it, it shows there's an allowance for remarriage. Um, so there's these different grounds, and then there's this passage in, in Exodus 21 as well. But I encourage you to study it for yourself. 
But it's clear, biblically, that divorce cannot happen just for any reason. And it can't happen for things like just falling out of love or where there's um, drifting apart or personality differences. It's really where there's hardness of heart and covenant-breaking behavior that's quite extreme. Um, particularly when one person or both people are totally unwilling to fulfill their covenant obligations to each other. Um, so as a summary, this is one perspective. Again, there's other perspectives on this, but situations where a marriage covenant is broken and where there are grounds for recognizing it through divorce could include adultery from Matthew 19, neglect or abuse from Exodus 21, um, or abandonment from 1 Corinthians 7. Again, there's, there's different views. Some have a much more conservative view on that and would say it's only sexual immorality, or some would even say there's no grounds for divorce. So there, there is a, there's a difference of opinion, um, but I think this makes sense of those different passages and, and God's heart. But it, this is clear, right, that it doesn't mean, even if these things happen, it doesn't mean that someone should get a divorce, right? The, the ideal is still, Jesus' ideal is strongly that marriage is for life. And even adultery, even, even abandonment for a time, if there's possible, a possibility of reconciliation, if there's openness to forgiveness and change, that should be the goal. But sometimes, because of hard-heartedness, it's not. John Mark Comer summarizes it this way, for Jesus, the only thing a marriage cannot survive is hardness of heart. And this shows the real need to keep hearts soft in the covenant of marriage, because it, it, the goal of marriage is not to just not get a divorce. It, it's to actually fulfill the covenant together. It's actually to be one flesh for life together, which requires continual investment, which requires soft hearts, which requires deep heart work. Um, it's not, the goal is not just not to get a legal piece of paper that says we're divorced, but it's actually to be one together. And again, we can't take cues from the culture for this, um, because the Divorce is very common. Um, in some ways, has become so normal, it's almost a rite of passage. Uh, some people have divorce parties. Um, it, it's, it's always an option that people could take. If things don't work out, we can just get a divorce. That, that cannot be a Christian's perspective. That, that, that must be the absolute last resort, not an easy option, but only where the covenant is clearly broken as a hard-hearted refusal to continue in extreme circumstances. So this was controversial back then. It's still controversial now. Um, and it was controversial for Jesus' disciples because if we can see how they respond. They are in a culture where men could divorce their wife for any reason. So marriage was not really this binding commitment. They just had to give a certificate. So to hear that it's a binding commitment except for extreme circumstances was quite uh, shocking to them. And it says in, in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. They recognize just the depths of the commitment that they're making and that, whoa, we shouldn't be doing that. Like, I don't want to do that kind of thinking. And it's interesting, Jesus' response, because his response kind of implies that, yeah, that's not a bad perspective. All right, like that's actually kind of right in some ways. This is a bit strange, but we're going to just, I'll look at what Jesus says and we'll get into it because it's really interesting. So Jesus replied to them saying that. He said, not everyone can accept this word, this, this word that he's about to give that they've kind of implied that maybe sometimes it's better not to marry. 
um, only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is really, really interesting because, right, Jesus' disciples, yes, say maybe it's better not to marry, and Jesus kind of is agreeing with them, though we see Jesus has a massively high view of marriage, right? This is God's intention. It's a way to reflect the image of God. Marriage is incredibly good, but Jesus is going to acknowledge that actually it's not for everybody, and, and some people are actually not able to participate in it. So he does this by talking about eunuchs, which is the next hot topic. So, eunuchs, uh, I think most people probably know what they are, but if you don't, it is a man who, effectively the word means a man who's not able to have sex, and thereby, in this context, marriage and sex are the same thing. So, you know, excluded from marriage, excluded from sex. The context is that they were people who were probably slaves, who were appointed to look after the king's wives and concubines, and, and so they wouldn't mess around with them. They were castrated, uh, gruesome, brutal stuff. Um, we're up to late last night learning about it. And, um, and, and yeah, Jesus uses this word. So that's why we're talking about it. Blame Jesus. Um, but but this is, it's such an interesting word that he, he uses and the way that he, he uses it here. So effectively... The disciples say some, uh, sometimes it's better not to marry. Then Jesus actually starts talking about people who are not able to marry, and it's against their will. People who are born a certain way, which he says that though, though marriage is designed by God, though humans are made male and female to reflect the image of God, Jesus acknowledges some people are born, he says, as eunuchs, which means they're born in a way that they don't fit the category of Christian marriage. And they're excluded, which that sounds totally unjust and unfair in our culture, right? But this is, this is just what Jesus says. Some people are this way from birth. And that for them, it's by implication, the call and the hard saying that's difficult to accept that Jesus is saying is that they are actually to live a life without sex and without marriage, against their will. But it's interesting, right? Because our culture would say marriage is a human right, right? Or sex is a human right. Everyone should be able to express themselves the way they want. But a Christian view says, no, marriage belongs to God. God designed it. He defines the boundaries of it. And because of human brokenness and sin, there are some people who, for different reasons, don't fit in that. And actually, they're not allowed to just redefine it and change it to suit them. Actually, they just are outside it. And Jesus seems to indicate that there. This could, um, I guess there could be a whole range of things that that means in terms of how someone was born. We won't get into that today. But Jesus acknowledges some people would be, because of the way they're born, don't fit in that category. And then he says, some people have been made eunuchs by others. Now this is probably the main way people become eunuchs, is either as a teenager or a child, maybe they're a slave and they're, they're castrated and, and so forth. But this could probably be extended to other things for, for us. Effectively, it's someone who, against their will, something's been done to them that excludes them from a life of marriage and sex. Now, it could be physically, but this probably could even uh, refer to even physical, emotional, sexual abuse that could actually really damage somebody deeply. That means that actually they, they're not really able to participate or, or that they're not able to engage in that kind of a relationship. It, it's something that's been done to them. 
um, because of the brokenness in the world. It could also, for our purposes, refer to someone who just can't get married, and no one will marry them. They want to be married, but they're not able to. And it's against their will. They would like to be, but there's not an ability to, and therefore, in a sense, they've kind of been made a eunuch by others. So Jesus acknowledges that that category of person exists. And then he goes even further. So he's, he's talking about some people who can't be married, not, not because of their choice, because of their birth or because of things that have been done to them. But then he starts to talk about people who choose to live like eunuchs. And the literal translation is pretty intense. It says that they make themselves eunuchs, which is obviously metaphorical, but it's quite extreme language um, that Jesus is saying that some people are called, those who can accept it, to stay single, to choose of their free will a life without marriage and sex for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus says that. And that is, is massively controversial Today, it was massively controversial back then, and Jesus himself was tied up in this controversy. What we actually see from this is that marriage is actually not ultimate, and it's not for everyone. Some, including Jesus, are called to singleness. What matters is the kingdom. I think this is probably my my favorite thing and what's impacted me most about this passage is that there's a paradox here in many ways, in that Jesus both has an incredibly high view of marriage, exalts it to this high sacred symbol position of the image of God, and at the same time has an incredibly high view of singleness and actually embraces it himself. Uh, And it's actually both. They can't be one or the other. It actually needs to be both. Because what is ultimate is not marriage. And, And sadly, marriage can be made the ultimate thing. Again, in our culture, Marriage, sex, romance, romantic love can be the ultimate thing for human fulfillment and desire. And even in the church, the ultimate kind of thing can be to get married, have kids, have a family. That, that's like the goal and that's the categories. But it's not for Jesus. He says the ultimate thing is the kingdom of God. The ultimate thing is the work that God's doing in the earth. Some people reflect that through marriage, through children, through family, other people are called to reflect that through devoting themselves to God in singleness with their free time, with their resources, with their energy, serving God in ways that married people can't. And that's what Jesus himself is doing. And it's interesting because um, often those people probably don't fit right into the culture, sadly sometimes don't fit into the church, And Jesus himself didn't fit into his culture. He might have even, some commentators even think that maybe Jesus might have even been called a eunuch or might have kind of, people might have given him a hard time for not being married. Uh, But he chose this way for the sake of the kingdom. And this just elevates singleness because singleness can sometimes just be seen as a waiting ground for marriage or it can be seen of being of lower value than marriage. But Jesus here models that to those who have to, not by their choice, they have to embrace a life of singleness and celibacy, and to those who choose to of their free will because of God's call, can lead incredibly fulfilling, meaningful, worshipful lives outside of marriage. That's what Jesus is presenting, which is massively countercultural to our our culture that someone could choose to live without sex and be totally fulfilled and full of life. That's how Jesus 
himself lived. So ultimately, marriage is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate. God and his work is. And ultimately, responding to the call and the gift and to what he's saying to each of us and to what's being given to us is what matters. Marriage is sacred. It's a symbol of a greater reality. But the greater reality, which it's a symbol of, is the marriage of heaven and earth, is the marriage of Jesus and his church, is Jesus being made, all things being made one in Christ. This, that's what this points to. And that, that's really, we're talking about like the central reality of life, that God is one, and he invites us to enter and be united with him and be one. And that's why marriage is so uh, important and there's this deep desire in us to be one, to be united, because we're made to be united with God and be one in Him. And ultimately, that's what we're looking forward to. So they've covered a lot of things today and, and big topics, right, and quite teaching-focused and technical with those interpretations. And But we're going to, res- I thought we could respond with communion today as a way to really uh, just come before God in our hearts with these topics as well, because they uh, massively affect us. Uh, as I said before, everyone here is is married, uh, not, it has some relationship to marriage, whether it's being married in a good marriage or in a hard marriage, or whether it's being divorced uh, and a marriage that has ended, or a marriage that maybe has ended through death, or maybe people here are waiting and desiring marriage, or maybe people here have chosen not to be married. Everyone has a different relationship to marriage. But ultimately, what matters is the kingdom. Ultimately, marriage points to something bigger, which wherever we're at, and however we've failed, we are invited to be a part of. As we sung before about Jesus' blood, that's applied to our hearts, where we have failed in these ways, where we've experienced brokenness in these ways, where, where we have sinned, where the sinfulness of the world has affected us, there is grace, there is forgiveness, there is healing. And ultimately, because God knows what it's like to be in a covenant that's broken. He was in a covenant with Israel and they broke it perpetually. Yet he made a new covenant in his blood. That's his commitment to us. That's his commitment to uh, his bride. That's his commitment to the marriage of heaven and earth, that he would give himself. And that's what we celebrate as we come to communion. So wherever you are at today in your relationship to the symbol of marriage, as, as we come to take communion, let yourself be drawn not to the symbol, but the, the reality, that the marriage of heaven and earth, the marriage of Christ in the church, the intimacy, in, intimacy and unity that we have with him because of his death and his resurrection. So if you'd like to get ready, you can get ready your, your cup and your juice and then I'll pray. We can share together. If this has brought up big things today, I encourage you to talk. I'm happy to talk to anybody or encourage you to seek support um, yeah, or to, 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 to share with others. Um, yeah, because we're all affected by these things deeply. So Lord, we just thank you for... Um, who you are as a covenant-making God of, of intimate love, um, life-giving love, that you overflow. This whole world and universe is an overflowing, generous gift that comes from your nature and of divine love. And thank you that you've made us in your image, and that's our joy and 
designed to reflect you. Thank you for the gift of marriage as a way to reflect you and to experience and, and demonstrate oneness and unity and diversity. God, we thank you for the kingdom that's bigger than marriage, God, where there's been brokenness and pain and sin. Thank you that there's healing and forgiveness and life, Lord. Where there's longing um, and, and pain, Lord, we thank you that there's hope in, in you and your gifts and your call in our lives. So wherever we are at today, God, wherever you have called us, whatever you are asking us to accept as our place for today in relation to this, we ask for grace. God, grace to love you and each other, grace to reflect you in our current circumstances and context, and ultimately grace to put our hope in you and your kingdom and your coming. So we just praise you, God, that the deep longing in our hearts will one day be realized when you come. And we just pray as the, the Bible closes with this prayer, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. They say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.